Welcome to Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. I'm your host, Lindsay Claiborne, and together with our guests, we'll uncover and share stories from real HR professionals and dive into how they succeeded and sometimes failed in leading their people and organizations toward new ways of working. The role of HR has drastically changed. In today's world, HR is no longer just an administrative function. It is a key business driver. HR leaders are standing at the forefront of their organizations, navigating new challenges, and leading major shifts in everything from recruitment, total rewards, engagement, retention, leadership, and more. In order to stay ahead of what works for their businesses, HR leaders are tapping into new ways of thinking and leading. I can't wait to share our dynamic and in-depth conversations with you. Remember, change is inevitable. Transformation is influential. Alrighty. Chelsea, welcome to the podcast. We're very excited to have you here. You and I have known each other a number of years now, which is crazy to think how time flies. And um, throughout that time, I've had the privilege to uh, have many conversations with you about all things HR. We've talked about organizational development and leadership and performance, communication, culture. And I'm really excited to get to share your insights with our listeners. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Great. So I just want to start off really generally getting to know you. You've been in the world of HR for almost 15 years now. And I'm curious, what inspired you to embark on a career in HR? So it's funny because I studied French and I thought I was going to be a French translator, live on a beach somewhere, work as little as possible. And I ended up falling into a startup. Friend invited me to interview and I said yes. And I wasn't quite sure what I was getting myself into. And about six months in, I remember thinking to myself, and I was pretty young at the time, I think this is a real job. (laughs) I think I have a real job. And that was the beginning of my career at Lightspeed. And I was with them for almost 11 years. But looking back, when I left university, I actually was trying to decide which direction I was going to go, translation, or funnily enough, I was looking at an HR course. So I think it's it's interesting. I tried to pursue one career and then kind of ended up back on the path that was my other option after school. But I think I've always enjoyed people, interacting with people, helping people succeed and generally organize. And those things kind of just fit well. Um, But I really don't think I understood that I was getting into a career in HR when I started. It's funny. Sometimes there's different plans for us that that we don't think we think we're going on one path and it just takes us on another. But you mentioned that you were at Lightspeed from the the very early days. Uh, How many employees exactly were when you started? I'm trying to remember, and I'm probably off by one or two, but it was around. Yeah, so pretty small. And I think what's interesting is that they they were at that size and they chose to invest in their first HR leader. So what's the case for companies to invest in HR, whether that's a full-time headcount or even a fractional headcount early on in their growth? Yeah, I think, you know, I thought it was normal because I had no comparison. So to me, it was normal to be 15 people and have an HR person. And as I grew in my career and Lightspeed grew, and I started talking to other companies, giving them advice or talking to HR people at other companies, I realized how unusual it was that Lightspeed had invested that significantly and that early. And I think it paid off. When I look back at our success, I think that one of the things that we did was we did invest in building out some of those structures and programs for people earlier on than other organizations do. And so it didn't hold us back. And other organizations, you know, sometimes when you don't invest in in 
people or people programs, and then you're a hundred people and you're suddenly trying to come in and bring in a people function and implement people programs. Sometimes there's resistance to it. People don't understand it. It gets harder. So you have sometimes both the need for the people programs and people leadership, but also the resistance to it if it hasn't been part of your culture and organization from an earlier stage. It sounds like that then that bringing in HR, investing in HR, I like that you use that that term investing at, an, at a later stage, it creates a, an environment where maybe you're spending more of your time on the change management piece, having to get individuals used to maybe a new way of thinking or a new way of operating with a lens of HR versus when it's there right from the beginning, it's sort of baked into the, the thinking and the operations of the company. Yeah, that's exactly it. And depending how you structure your team, you can have other challenges outside of, let's call it, you know, people management or talent management. If you're looking at functions like recruitment, you can end up actually spending a lot more money the longer you wait to internalize the function. Because when you hit a need and investors are expecting you to grow and you need to hire right away, you're faced with either having your managers who have other jobs and other roles spending a lot of their time recruiting or you're faced with hiring expensive external solutions, which aren't really sustainable in the long run. Um, and certainly we learned over time that our internal recruiters hired faster and better than any external solution that we could find. And so there's a bunch of benefits to internalizing that function earlier so that you're building your capacity, if, especially if you're expecting to be a high growth company and you're you don't think that you're going to build a 20 person company and leave it at that. You're expecting to grow. Well, you need to build the engine that's going to drive or deliver on a bunch of that growth. I think that's a really good way to think about it, that it is kind of an integral piece of of the engine. You know, we're, none of us are going to get in a car and expect it to run smoothly if it's missing a core, a core piece of of the engine. So I like that analogy a lot. And you mentioned, you know, growth, which Lightspeed definitely went through while you were there. And like you mentioned, you were there for for over 10 years, and that mm -hmm. the company went through growth, it went through global expansion, acquisitions, and, and even an IPO. Mm -hmm. How did the HR function change over that time? <laughs> I mean, a ton. And, and it's interesting, because I think it was something that we learned pretty early on, which I was grateful for the lesson, which is you can't, especially when you're in a startup, you can't build an HR structure or team or set of services and call it done. <laughs> if you're growing, you, you just can't. So, you know, we used to kind of joke that, you know, it was like, you know, we built the car just in time to drive it. And then by the time we got in, we needed to suddenly build an airplane instead. And so I think you have to be willing to be flexible and recognize that the people and the structure that you need at 20 people or 30 people will be very different than the team and structure you need at 100. And it will be different than the team and structure you need at 300. And so if you can focus on adaptability from the outset, then it's not failure if you have built something that needs to change because you're building what you need when you need it. And then you're being agile and recognizing when the need is changing and you need to adapt. That's a really great point to think about is that there's always going to be different challenges that we're, we're going to come up against. And just because we've built and solved for the challenges of yesterday doesn't mean that we've built and solved for the challenges of tomorrow. Not at all. Yeah. And specifically, as you were going through that change, I want to zero in on the culture side, because mm -hmm. I know just through our conversations that culture was is such a big part of the, the company's 
core. And how did that evolve over time, specifically just as you were growing, but then also going through that expansion and acquisitions? Yeah, so I think I've thought about that a little bit, um, because I think one of the things that was maybe surprising to us in a way was, I think that there was a cultural core that we were able to maintain over many, many years, where, you know, how it felt working at the company in a very at a very early stage, three or four or five or six or seven years later, you still felt that maybe it wasn't exactly the same, but you still felt like 60% of it or 70% of it, a critical mass of it felt similar. And so I think, you know, there's a couple of things. One is, of course, like culture is people. So hiring the right people and enabling the right people. We're all building culture every day. Culture is, you know, culture is something that everybody in, in an organization contributes to. It's a living thing. But the other thing I think is interesting is when we did acquisitions, we looked at the culture of the companies we were going to acquire. That wasn't an afterthought. Of course, we're looking at the product and we're looking at the market and we're looking at team, but we were looking at the culture. And we never did an acquisition of a team that had a culture that was drastically different from our own. So I think we were always able to identify core cultural components in our culture and in the acquiring company's culture that reassured us that we had enough common critical mass that we were going to be able to make an integration work. That's a really interesting approach that I've actually, I've never heard, but it sounds integral and it sounds like it's aligned just with the the whole philosophy that hr is such a core part of of that engine but obviously there especially when you're going out on a global scale there's obviously challenges that come with melding just different cultures from like a mm -hmm. geographical perspective so mm -hmm. what were some of the challenges you encountered in in that realm so not the company culture but more the culture of people living in and working in in different areas of the world yeah, it's, I mean, there's no easy answers, I think, around how do you integrate a bunch of different cultures. But we did some fun stuff when we did our acquisitions to help us navigate what that would look like. And I think one of the first things is admitting that culture is different in different places, right? If, if we don't talk about culture and we don't treat it like it's core to what we're doing, then you can run into all kinds of problems. And I remember one of our uh, early acquisitions which was in the Netherlands, we sent a team from Canada and we met with the team in the Netherlands. And we actually did a bunch of cultural understanding exercises that were fun. They were light and they were fun where we were learning about, you know, what are the stereotypes about your culture or country that are true? And what are the stereotypes that are not true? And it allowed us to kind of uncover a bunch of um, pieces of information that would help us work together most, more smoothly. And so, you know, an example of that is the um, relationship that different cultures have with time which of course is, is an interesting thing to talk about in the context of a work environment. And yeah. uh, the Dutch, for example, their relationship with time is, is much more um, binary. Um, you know, you should be on time for a meeting or early. And if you're late for something, it can be viewed as disrespectful to the other person. And of course, that's a little bit different than how Canadians and Americans view time or time is a slightly more flexible concept for us being a few minutes late not the not the biggest deal but it was something that we had to talk about so that the canadians could make extra effort to not be late or to let people know if they were going to be late for a meeting with someone coming from a culture that's that's more focused on on time um, and being on time 
Um, and equally, uh, it allowed our Dutch colleagues to give us grace because they knew enough about Canadian culture to know that if someone was late for a meeting, they weren't doing it to try and disrespect the person or make their day more difficult. So sometimes it's small things. Sometimes culture is little things. Mm -hmm. You know, another one is we, we talked about the feedback sandwich <laughs> that North Americans love, right? When North Americans yeah. give or receive feedback, we want a positive piece of feedback. Then you can tell us what's going wrong or what you want us to change. And then tell mm -hmm. us again something that we're doing well. And the, the, you know, the Dutch just don't have time for that. They're just like, just don't tell me good morning. How am I? Whatever. Just tell me what you want me to do. And I think that, you know, we had to learn how to adapt and adjust communication styles to accommodate that. So I think it's, it's having both parties learn about each other, both cultures learn about each other. And then everyone has to agree to, to try something different, to try and adjust the way you norm, normally work to be a bit more accommodating. And if you can both do that, then usually you can, you can, you know, you can reach a good happy ground um, and meet in the middle. Yeah. And that sounds a lot like something you and I have, have spoken about in the past as well, which is identifying moments, identifying moments amidst challenges where you can transform it from something that could be maybe de-energizing, demoralizing, distracting from mm -hmm. the ultimate goal and really turning it into something fun and memorable and productive and or energizing. And that, that's something that especially given, you know, we're in a the economic climate we're in and all of the other challenges that the world is facing, we can probably need a little bit more of. So from your experience, you know, how do we or how can HR leaders be more proactive about in a challenging situation, being able to uncover those moments? Yeah, I think one of the things that you have to cultivate is your sense of curiosity. I think it's easy to lose that when you're in a high stress corporate environment because you have a million things that you're trying to solve, right? You might be trying to help with one person's problem, but you've got a list of 95 other problems on the back burner. And, you know, it can be easy to decide that you know what's going on. And I think that if you can maintain your curiosity and ask questions when you're in a difficult situation or you're trying to understand why something's not working, then you can get to a better place where you understand each other or you can uncover things that you wouldn't have in particular if you're in a position of power if you're in a leadership role people won't always volunteer things i think and what we can talk later on about the importance of trust at work mm -hmm. and in a, in a work environment but i think um it's it can be as simple as asking questions following your instinct when that something's going on and asking questions until you figure out what's going on um, and then you can figure out the problem how to solve it or as you mentioned before how to reframe a challenge into an opportunity is so important, especially in in the the work that HR professionals do. And how do you think that maybe more junior HR professionals can can start to hone in on their instinct, but not just hone in on and understand when they're feeling it internally, but then vocalizing it in a way that's going to be heard? First, you have to give yourself permission to ask questions. Right. And that's a cultural piece as well. Does the company culture invite questioning? Does it invite interrogation? Or is it a culture where everybody's just supposed to do what their boss tells them to do? So I think that there's a responsibility for the broader organization to create an environment where anybody, whether it's an HR person or not, can ask those questions. Um, and then, you know, I think it's having some faith in your own instincts. You know, you can be a junior person, but it doesn't mean that you don't have 
a good idea. It doesn't mean that you don't have the instinct to sense that something is not right or that there's an opportunity that hasn't been fully um, explored. And I think that too often junior junior people, especially junior women, will hold back and they'll notice things or they'll think things or they'll see things, but they won't say anything. And I think what I have seen is that a lot of the most successful leaders leadership I've seen has come from inside an organization. And you have to remind yourself that everybody got their experience by doing whatever they did for the first time, right? Like nobody's right. born with tons of experience. We all have to gain it. And so your instincts, just because you haven't done something before or seen something before, it doesn't mean that your instincts are off. And so I think if a junior HR person hopefully has supportive leaders that they can go to, they should have the courage to say the thing out loud that they're thinking or wondering, like put it in the light. Yeah, that that's a that's a really great point. And specifically when you when you talked about having great leaders, because it's a true partnership, I, I feel at every single level between HR and all of the, the business leaders. And I, I'm curious what you found the most successful HR HR leaders do to foster that partnership between, especially if they're coming in at a time where maybe the company's really well established or is even mm -hmm. going through through challenging times. What do the best HR leaders do to really build that partnership between them and, and the business leaders? I mean, I think HR always has a mandate, right? Like there's typically, mm -hmm. you know, there's some programs you're supposed to run. There's some data you're supposed to be able to collect and give to the business and interpret. So there's kind of this baseline of like stuff that HR is supposed to do, which is like pretty, you know, broadly accepted and everybody understands it. Um, but I think, you know, there's two ways you can go about that. One is coming in and just saying, well, this is my mandate and this is what I'm here to do and I'm going to do it. Um, or you can invest the time in talking with the other leaders and finding out what are their challenges and what are their pain points? So I'm a big fan of, especially if you're an HR leader coming into a new organization, doing intake interviews, right? And making sure that whatever you're going to ask of people, you're going to give them what they need, as much of what they need as, as, as much of what you're going to ask of them. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're going to come in and, and build a new program, well, you better talk to them and understand what their reality has been what's working and not working, what's painful for them, you know, so collect information, learn and listen, listen to people, and then craft your solution as opposed to going in, because you kind of know you're supposed to build a whatever program and doing it. So I think it's it's talking to people and not once, right? Talk to people and talk to people again, and again. So I think every HR leader should be meeting regularly with the the leaders across the organization to make sure that they really understand what, what people are facing. And sometimes it's the informal meetings that are the most useful, right? Because you've got an agenda, mm -hmm. you're coming in, you're talking about whatever you need to talk about, great. But sometimes it's the informal chats that you have with people where mm -hmm. you're just learning about how their week was and what's going on that you can actually uncover ways you can provide value that might not have come up in a more formal setting. Which is challenging in today's day and age because it feels like every interaction is so formal. Like every interaction is a meeting. It's something. It's something you have to plan for. There's. There's. It lacks that impromptu, especially and mainly because because we're online. Are there? Because mm -hmm. what you were saying kind of sounds like you're filling up the 
the trust battery. You're establishing that rapport, mm -hmm. you're developing that trust with them. How do you think we need to think about doing that at a broader scale? So going back to previously about trust within organizations, how do you think being in a more remote world has changed how we can go about building trust, maintaining trust with not only each other as like HR to business leaders, but just amid, amongst the, the wider employee base within companies? Oh, yeah, it's a hard question. Um, and I feel like it's going to take us years to figure it out. I'm not sure I have any good answers for that. But I think, well, you just mentioned that now in our more remote world, it feels like every interaction is formal. And I think you're right. And I think one way that we can mitigate that a little bit is making sure that we are reaching out in a more impromptu way that kind of mimics the ways we might have reached out in a more in-person world. So it could be as simple as deciding that each, you know, every second day or at the end of every day, if you're an HR person, that you're going to check in with somebody in the company with no agenda. You're just going to say hi and ask how the person is doing and without having something that you need from them or something that you need to tell them. Um, and it can be similar with, with the leaders, right? Like what little rituals can you create with the leaders that you work with that don't feel big and formal and heavy? You know, maybe it's a 10 minute Zoom at the end of the day on a Thursday to have a quick chat about how, how the week was. So I, I think there's ways to set up virtual rituals the same way that we had them in a more in-person world. I just think we have to be more intentional about it. Yeah, intention is is so important nowadays. And I think I like the term that you use there of, of, of rituals. And there we naturally developed habits when we were in office, but we, we probably didn't really pay attention to the fact that they were habits. And now it's we do have to think about, okay, it's not just log on, get your work done, log off. It we have to be aware that to build those habits and understand mm -hmm. the value that they're that they're going to bring, that they're going to bring back. Uh, to us throughout our time, which brings me to kind of my next question, which is um, we've talked a lot in the past, you and I, about value and demonstrating value of uh, HR initiatives. So what are some of the ways that you've found, like first and foremost, buy-in is integral to to mm -hmm. first to getting that, to getting the, the value across. What are some of the ways that you've found to get either managers or leaders like really jazzed about HR initiatives? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, gosh, that's a hard one. I mean, there's a couple things that come to mind there. I think the first is, I think it's a great practice when you're building a new initiative to go and interview all your stakeholders, right? Like, mm -hmm. talk to everybody, ask questions, get their opinions on things, try and identify where you might be able to build not necessarily consensus, but enough broad support to try something. I think that's super, super important, because it's always tough to ask for support when you know, you just present something and it's the first time anybody's hearing of it and they're not sure if it addresses the problem. But I think, you know, when I think about HR initiatives and gaining um, buy-in from stakeholders, one of the things I think that we need to get better at as HR people that we're not very good at is actually marketing. <laughs> you know, I think that we often hold these deep intuitions about what we're building and how it will positively impact the organization, but we're not great at telling the story. And I think that we have to become better storytellers and build the narratives around, well, what are we doing? Why are we doing it, first of all? Um, what is the outcome it's going to produce? 
what will happen within the organization if we do this? What will happen if we don't do this? And I think that that's important for many reasons. And the first is actually to make sure that we know why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, because we know that in traditional HR, there's lots of building and executing programs because everybody does it, right? Because it's a kind of program that everyone's supposed to have. It's a boilerplate thing. And so if it doesn't exist, we should build it and do it the same way everybody else does. And I don't know, I think after what I've learned and what I've seen, I would challenge that and say that creating the narrative and the story of what you're building and how it's going to impact the organization is important because you you don't want to time is limited and and yeah. valuable for the HR person for the leaders for the team members and so I think you have to really understand your motivation behind doing something and and mm-hmm. the value it's going to create and if you can do that then you can tell the story to your leaders and if your leaders believe the story and buy into it, then it allows them to also tell the story to their team because your leaders become part of the change management when you roll out anything new. So I think that storytelling piece is something that we're we're not so good at uh, as, a, as an industry generally and, and a, a mm-hmm. skill that we need to develop. That's the first time I've, I've heard it put so succinctly that we do need to weave the story of, of why we're doing this and that it's not just a cut and paste because as we know, it, what works in one organization is, is not going to work in another in exactly the same way. Uh, it, it, and it also sounds like, too, what you're saying is is to to learn your organization, learn what maybe what has worked in the past, what hasn't, how it's worked in the past, how it hasn't, and, and almost be a student of your organization and your people to know how to best position that story and position that initiative when, when you're looking to roll it out. Yeah, if you understand the landscape and the history and the context of what you're doing, then you're going to come up with a better plan, you know, and and I think I've thought about this a lot recently, and I know you and I have talked about it, and and it makes me think of things like the traditional annual performance review, right, that everybody just does and did for a long time, because it's what you got to do once a year, you got to tell people how they're doing, and you got to give them some kind of rating, and you've got to decide if they get a comp increase. And I think that if we were to step back and really ask ourselves, what is the goal? What do we want out of this? What is the outcome that we want to see? And then design to the outcome and the goal. I really don't think that we would design (laughs) the annual performance review as it exists today. So yeah, I think doing your research, learning the organization, getting the context, and then really interrogating your motivation and your reasons help a ton in presenting a more comprehensive suggestion where people can look at it and say, okay, you've really thought about this. You've thought about this and you're not trying to copy paste. You're really trying to build something bespoke for our team that makes sense for our context. And I think that's super important. Another thing that's that's useful is um, being willing to pilot things and being willing to time bound them. So say you're gonna try something, agree collectively on how long you're willing to try it and when you're gonna all look at it, whether or not it worked. And if it didn't, yeah. how you're going to change it or adapt it. And I think being uh, upfront about that too, and, and that you're going to be open to to, to feedback from the, the people that are either piloting it or, or that are using it and giving them those avenues to, to feel heard, whether it's at the leader level or the employee level. And again, not maybe not the decision makers, but ultimately giving them an, an avenue. It's funny you bring up the performance review, though, uh, because one thing I read recently in an HBR article was that one of the flaws in performance reviews, and again, this is just the, the point of view of the, the author, um, but that the traditional performance review places 
more emphasis on and holds employees accountable to what they did versus really looking at how do we improve performance both now and in the future. So I, I wanted to just knowing our history of talking about this and, and um, also hearing that you've given a lot of thought to this recently. I'm, I'm curious what your opinion is about about that. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I think it's it's so clear to me now. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I was definitely the person early in my career who was like, well, we got to do this because this is what everybody does. So we got to yeah. do it just like this. <laughs> so, you know, my, my, my uh, learning and insight comes from having done it that way, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't get it right the first time, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, uh, but yeah, I agree. I think that the feedback is way too old. Uh, we know that feedback is not useful when it's too aged. Um, you know, mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of impacts to waiting a long time to give feedback you can be influenced by what's happened most recently but the truth is is like again what's the question is what are we trying to accomplish here are we trying to just inventory what happened in the past or are we trying to influence what happens in the future and if we're trying to influence what happens in the future is telling someone how they did eight to 12 months after they did it a good way to do that probably not so how can we redesign that that framework but to me, that's the fundamental question is, is why are we doing this? What's the point? And if the point is for it to be forward looking and to give people an opportunity to be agile and uh, adapt quickly to changing needs and identify where skills can be grown, uh, then it has to be something that's that's a lot more in the present and real time than than the traditional process allows. We just talked a bit about the, the annual performance review, but I, I'm curious what other um, like changes or evolutions or, or even learnings you've 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 gathered um, within the last you know ten to fifteen years around performance management more more broadly, uh, whether that's like feedback or check-ins or one-on-ones. Mm -hmm. Like, what yeah. do you think has kind of changed? What do you think we can learn from the past and and carry into the future? Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because. I think if you'd asked me that five years ago, I probably would have talked a lot about the process and the framework itself. And you know, from conversations we've had that I'm a fan of a very simple approach, align your chats with the business quarters, like let's talk about the actual work that just happened and what went well and what didn't, let's make sure we know where we're going in the future. Um, so I'm a fan of, of much more frequent check-ins, lighter, I think, after thinking about it, it almost doesn't matter what the specific framework is. Like there's a bunch of different ways you can do one-on-ones and different questions you can ask and different frameworks we can, you can use. But I think when I think about performance management, I think that, you know, what we've realized over the past, you know, 10 years and hopefully earlier than that, but we're, we are each on our own individual learning curve um, when we enter our careers. So maybe it's just me arriving here now, but I think that the more important thing is the culture and the trust and the relationship between the leader and the team member. I think that one of the things that we see happen, I've certainly seen happen, is that, you know, if you're in a growing company, you get elevated to a leadership role. You're a, you're, you know, you know, you're a more junior person and you get your first kind of management or leadership role. And we often elevate people who are strong um, individual contributors to leadership roles. And, but we don't always tell them how to be a leader. We kind of leave them hanging. And a lot of junior leaders assume that being a leader means having all the answers and being the voice of authority. And I think that when that is your perception of leadership, the way that you approach performance management is very, very different. It's much more command and control. It's much more one directional. 
And if we invest the time in training our junior leaders to be strong leaders, which to me means unlocking your people, becoming the asker of the questions, not necessarily having all of the answers, getting good at framing questions, asking the right questions, but it's about unlocking the people around you. And if you take that view of, of leadership, then I think you get a very different approach to performance management, which is one where you're viewing yourself as a guide for the mm -hmm. humans that you're working around and with, but equally as a partner in that person's growth. And also, you, you, you know, you can learn things yourself as a leader. So I think that building trust and building a relationship where when people believe, when people know, and I mean this in an authentic way, when people believe that you truly care about them, you care about their well-being, you care about their career growth, you care about um, their success, then it becomes magic in the relationship in terms of performance. Then you can have honest conversations. Because if you believe somebody genuinely has your best interests at heart, then you can have much more difficult, frank conversations than you can when the person doesn't feel like they can trust you. You also learn a lot more as a leader when you have that type of relationship because people feel comfortable talking to you. The trust goes both ways. And so I think now that that would be my perspective, that, that focusing on helping leaders be good leaders, once you get that down and the trust is there and you can have these really open and honest relationships, then you can put any performance framework you want over top of it. You can put any framework for any cadence of one-on-ones and any way you're going to collect and you know decide on comp increases and promotions and whatever, because underneath all of it, is what happens every day and how we interact with our team every day. That's real performance management. And that sounds like, so you, you highlighted strong leadership, empowered leadership, enabled leadership. And it sounds like that's a key ingredient if we want to unlock the, unlock our people, unlock high performance as, as is often, mm -hmm. in, as often said, are there any other, I guess, integral ingredients that you've identified for you know, if we were putting a recipe for high performance together, uh, we have strong, enabled and empowered leadership. Is there anything else that you would you would put into that kind of recipe mm. for high performance? Yeah, I guess it would be accountability and modeling of all those things at the very top of the organization. So uh, and I, I think um, it sounds simple, but anything that you build, any program that you create, any coaching and guidance that you give people, if you are not seeing the values and the integrity and the accountability around performance modeled at the very top of the organization, it's really hard to get people at any other level to participate or to believe in those frameworks. So, you know, I'm, it's one of those things that I think it's a tough thing, right? The CEO is the yeah. most accountable person. The C-level, they have to be the ones that are the most willing to be vulnerable, the most willing to admit errors, um, the most willing to take accountability for outcomes. And if they can model that really well, then you're going to be able to shed a lot of the fear that comes with performance management and accountability. And that lets everybody else in the organization do the same. And so I think when you when you have good modeling at the top, you can move from an organization that um, where, you know, accountability is something where you're pointing fingers outwards that other people who are accountable and deflecting a lot of the times, which is just a waste of time to a deep accountability, a deep internal accountability organization where every person is looking inward and figuring out what could they have done differently? What could the team have done differently to get to the better outcome? Because that's what you're seeing your leaders do. Internalizing that 
those practices, those beliefs, those values, that seems like that's when you're going to reach your full potential as an organization. If every single person has internalized those attributes that are are most important and whether that's accountability uh, or trust, that seems to to really unlock and, and kind of drive that intrinsic motivation to be better, to do better uh, on behalf of their team and the organization as a whole. I think so, because otherwise you can have pockets of it across an organization, but you might not achieve it at scale. Uh, Lightspeed ultimately went through an IPO. So what what changes from a a people and culture perspective happen post IPO? Yeah. So what changes post IPO is everything and nothing (laughs) is is the answer. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, in terms of people and culture specifically, I think that there's, it's not as though there are major changes in a people and culture department overnight when you, when you IPO, I think that the changes are more broader and, and broader, more organizational changes. Um, But I think there's a few things that, that, that I noted, of course, and some of these changes happened before. So I just want to caveat that if you're an organization that wants to IPO, um, some of the changes that occur post IPO are things that you should be preparing for years in advance. They're muscles you should be building. They're, they're practices that you should be um, implementing so that you're ready because you can't become a different organization the day after an IPO. You have to be the, the public organization before you IPO to be able to successfully be that public organization after the IPO. The IPO is just a date, right? I think one is a, a really elevated level of discipline around planning and execution. And mm-hmm. so our the CFO that led Lightspeed through our IPO, um, and he'll laugh if he hears this, but the mantra that he had all of us repeating constantly for like a good 18 months before the IPO was, do what you say you're going to do. So you can't, you know, you can't play around with with commitments. You need to plan and then you need to execute. You need to plan and you need to execute. And you have to get really good at those two things, deciding what you're going to do and then doing it. Um, so I think that is a something that is easy for organizations to start to practice ahead of an IPO and, and be ready to be successful afterwards. Um, and then something else that, that changes, of course, or something that's challenging is you have to figure out how to develop a stronger um, ability to focus and filter out noise because what changes post IPO is the public scrutiny. Suddenly everybody's paying attention to your organization. Everybody's got an opinion on what's happening. You know, you have now your stock on a public market and the price is fluctuating every day. And that can be a really big distraction for the people inside the organization. And so developing a really strong ability to almost ignore what's happening around you or filter out what's not useful so that you can focus on doing what you say you're going to do, which is the key thing that you need to be able to do to be a successful public company. Just going back to that, to that mantra that do it, do what you say you're going to do. And just goes back to that accountability piece, making sure that you're holding yourself accountable to the commitments that you're making Mm -hmm. because an IPO is a pretty big commitment. <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. The biggest, yeah. We talked about the the, the evolution a bit uh, of your time at Lightspeed and the growth and the global expansion, and then ultimately the IPO. I, I'm curious, what are the the different challenges that, or or even opportunities that you uncovered throughout the different stages of growth that a, another HR leader uh, could anticipate um, or could 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 look for and maybe be able to be a bit, a bit more proactive about them. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely 
an organization is different at different stages. And it's really, really interesting looking back and thinking about how um, how the organization evolved and comparing notes with other people and other organizations that have been through the same thing. Um, I think that in your earliest stage, your biggest challenge is trying to deliver with limited resources, right? Like every startup is trying to do something big and they don't, they never have enough funding for what you want to do. So you're being scrappy and you're trying to figure out how, how to deliver with very, very limited resources. Hiring's challenging when you're really small because you often can't be as competitive on the market as your larger uh, peers are able to be, but you still have to hire the right people. Um, and I think that at that early stage, the way you mitigate some of that that challenge around trying to deliver in an environment where you're generally under-resourced, like perpetually, is having a really high talent density team. If you hire the right people, and if you have a strong culture, then the people who are working with you at that stage feel deeply connected to the mission of the com company. Um, they feel deeply connected to each other, and you can get a lot out of people. You can make real magic together when you are motivated and you feel connected and you feel like you're doing meaningful work. But then you start to grow, right? And so, you know, let's say you start at 15, 20 people and then you get to 75, 100 people. What happens then is the processes or the lack of process that kept you agile when you were in your earlier stage starts to actually become a problem because at 75 to 100 people, you can't fit everybody in the same room anymore. Communication is a constant challenge at every stage, figuring out how to communicate and what to communicate across the organization is, is I, I, I have never seen an organization that has figured that out perfectly. It's like an ongoing thing that you're always looking at trying to figure out. But I think it's interesting because the risk, you run the risk of having not enough structure actually becoming um, a headwind. Uh, for the organization because mm. people start not knowing what's going on it gets a little chaotic you don't know how to get things done or people are doing different things and they're not aligned and so i think that's when you have to start putting in a bit more structure and then if you okay. skip forward a little bit i remember um i've always remembered this because it was true but one of our earlier cfos had received the advice from somebody else that when you hit about 150 people that's when weird stuff starts to happen like that's when unexpected <laughs> unexpected things start to happen. And mm -hmm. I think it's because at that size, yes, you will still have some people who feel deeply connected to the company, but it's not the same as when you're 20, 30 people and you fit in one room and you do start to have people who are less connected to the organization or the mission, but are working for you. And yeah, weird stuff will happen. Things that you never thought you would have to worry about and things you never thought you'd have to tell employees, you know, not to do will will happen. So that's like a weird stage. Okay. And then when you're like 250-ish, like, you know, you're starting to get bigger, then you have a new challenge because now you have to make sure that you don't over-engineer your structure. So whereas, you know, around 100 people, you might be not moving fast enough because you have a lack of structure and putting in structure will actually accelerate you, the right structure. When you're bigger, you have to be careful that you don't have so much structure that it slows you down. That complexity element yeah. kind of as organizations grow, their complexity increases. So there's fun things at every stage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. But but good things for everyone to, to think about, of, you know, it goes back to what we were saying with the, there's always going to be new challenges, new challenges to mm -hmm. face. And I like that you framed it as you know, just because we built it at 100 people, and now at 250, it, it's it's causing some 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 challenges for us doesn't mean it was wrong to build it at 
100. It just means now we're at a different stage. There's different challenges. There's different uh, elements of the context to consider. So now we almost have to re-engineer, re-architect what we did to, to better fit where we are now. Exactly. And if you think about it, it's a good problem to have because if, if that's mm. happening, then it means that your growth is is rapid. So it's it might be frustrating to feel like you have to go back to the drawing board and re-engineer things every year or two. But if you're doing that, it's because you're growing. Well, most HR folks, we all say that uh, every day is a different day. Every day brings new challenges. So just you know, if every day brings a new challenge, then every stage of growth is obviously going to bring a, a different set of challenges too. So I, I think that's a really good, a really good way to sum up how, as we, the evolution, the organization evolves and grows, we can be aware, but we can't plan for everything. And we just have mm -hmm. to respond with the best knowledge and the best tools that we have at that time. Absolutely. So now we are at the lightning round, which is a series of three <laughs> questions and okay. you can answer them with one word, one sentence. If one of them piques your interest and you happen to go on an antidote, that's totally okay. Uh, happy to go down that rabbit hole. But these are just three questions that I think are really important for our, our listeners to, to hear. And uh, we wrap up every episode with them. So are you ready for the lightning mm, round? Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. Okay. So the first question, what is the number one thing that you think HR leaders need to transform their thinking on? I'm going to say everything and just go back to what we talked about earlier, that you should question everything that you build, transform your thinking on everything, walk into everything, asking, why are we doing this? What do we want to accomplish? Um, don't let anything go uninterrogated. I love that. The curiosity. Don't let go of the curiosity. Yeah. Awesome. So number two, what is the most impactful piece of feedback you have ever received? You can't be everything to everybody. Oh, I think that's going to hit home for a lot of yeah. a lot of folks at HR. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then the last one is how much of your journey is made up of failures and how much of your journey is made up of successes? My instinct is to say 80% failure, 20% success. And what everybody sees, it's like an iceberg, right? What everybody sees is the yeah. success. And what you don't see is everything you tried, everything that you think you did wrong, everything you wish you'd done differently. Um, so yeah, it's a lot more failure, but the failure is what we need the failure to reach the success. It forms the basis. Everyone goes through, and the question is a little presumptuous, but everyone does go through, <laughs> everyone does go through failures. And it's just really important to, I think, remind ourselves and, and, and humble ourselves that no one makes it to success without some failures along the way. Yeah, there's no failure. There's only lessons. That's a good way to think about it. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us on the HR uh, Transformations podcast. We are so happy to have had you to hear your insights about your incredible journey at Lightspeed and beyond and helping uh, other organizations navigate through the wonderful world of HR and all of the uh, amazing successes, but also challenges that come along the way. So appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. To find out more about Cardata's vehicle reimbursement software tailored for HR professionals, visit cardata.co and see how you could benefit from a fully managed reimbursement program.